Right. Is this still going to work then? Yes. Okay. Let's just quickly check audio settings, streamers, meeting, original sound. Uh, okay. This is working perfectly fine then. Marvelous, marvelous. All right, fellas. Here we go. It's Bill. It's the episode to mark President Bill Clinton looking at his record on domestic policy, his foreign policy, his time as president, but also examining his record as not his record and his legacy we're going to look at his early life his governorship his 92 96 campaigns and then his actual policies and james has arrived right i don't know why it keeps zooming in every time you come onto the call but hey hey you are now here right oh it follows me around look yeah it's rather bizarre hmm. but i'm hope let us begin Wait, Jane, speaking to the mic for a second. Hello? Yeah, that's better. You sounded like you were fucking chuntering. What? You sounded like you were chuntering before. That's why. But no, your audio is much clearer now. Right? Yeah, that's good. Both got copies of the documents. Let us begin. Mm-hmm. I'll do the early years. You knew the governorship of Arkansas. I'll do 92 when we go on like that. Okay. All right, so of course, Bill William Jefferson Clinton uh, was, of course, born in Hope, Arkansas on August 19th, 1946. His dad was Roger Clinton, he was a drunk. He went to Georgetown University and was made class president. Of course, whilst he was there, he went to go and clerk for Senator William Fulbright, Bill Fulbright, uh, who was, of course, notable for the Fulbright hearings on the Vietnam War. And LB Lyndon Johnson had referred to as half bright. <laughs> Clinton got a Rhodes Scholarship to study at Oxford University for three years. And while still in Arkansas in 1972, he worked on George McGovern's campaign for President of the United States as a Southern director. In 1974, of course, he ran for the Arkansas Third District and he lost by 52 to 48. However, two years before, the Republican incumbent had won by 77 to 23%. So he cut the margin down rapidly. And of course, at this time, he met Hillary Clinton. She was working in Washington at the time. And they were. then she moved with him to, down to Arkansas. This was the time of, of Watergate. But what happened in 1978, James? Well, in 1978, um, he was 32 at the time. Clinton decided to run for governor of Arkansas. And he easily won the election, becoming one of the youngest governors in the history of America. Um, However, um, after being elected, it was kind of it was kind of obvious from the people of Arkansas that they did not take kindly to his youth and inexperience. Um, in addition to other mistakes that he made along the campaign trail and along uh, and, uh, and in his term, uh, Clinton struggled to control unrest among Cuban refugees who who were being held temporarily detained by the federal authorities in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. So uh, that, that caused public outcry. Um, additionally, the increased motor license fees to pay for road improvement alienated the state's strong timber interest by trying to uh, by, by trying in vain to intervene in the debate over the use of clear cutting. Um, as a result, the electorate chose Frank White, um, a very little known, not many people very really fat, knew who he was. Very fat, obnoxious, rude little man. <laughs> but many... Pretty much nobody knew who he was, uh, but they elected him 
because they just didn't they didn't like what Clinton did. They, and they because, just, what, he and just because what was the year, James? It was 1878, 80. And what happened nationwide in 1980? I don't know. What happened in 1980? Ronald Reagan won the election. Oh, true, true. That, that, that would have probably put the Republican thing, yeah. Revolution. Well, was, was this before or after the Reagan election? I'm not even dignifying that with a response. No, 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 no. If you are that, after 31 <laughs> episodes of this podcast, if you seriously have to ask that question to wind me up. Yes. Keep going. What? With your notes with about the governor when he was governor of Oh, Arkansas. okay, okay. Yeah. And as a result, as I said, he lost. Um after after obviously being shot by his loss from the right. for the kind of landslide that he won the first time, uh, Clinton joined a law firm in Little Rock, but spent most of his time running for re-election. Uh, in nineteen eighty two, uh, in the nineteen eighty two contest. Clinton acknowledged his errors, something a politician didn't very rarely do, and something they still don't do at the time, uh, right now, and persuaded yeah. and persuaded the electorate to give him another shot by appealing that was to the their same great year, George Wallace acknowledged his errors. That's too funny. Yes. Because that same year, uh, 92, George Wallace was running for governor of Alabama, and that was the same year he apologised for being a segregationist and actually went <laughs> out to win the black vote. Yes, he did. He that's, that was the year when he started to go a bit more moderate, you know, saying apologizing for the tax increase and stuff. Mm. Um. Well, he he won he won over them by appealing to the chat and uh, by appealing to the charm of the people from Arkansas, as well as he honed his TV advertising skills. Yes, as well. So I mean, you couldn't really go anywhere in Arkansas without seeing him on TV. Um. He triumphed in the nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty four. And he was later elected to two terms of yeah. four years in 1986 to now this, now this was a bit of a, uh, he it was a bit of debatable. It was quite, it was quite, um, it was quite at the time. It was quite because the laser it was popular. He had an yeah. education. It was something basically everybody could get behind. You have to remember, Clinton won in eighty two, and then eighty four, and eighty six, and ninety by campaigning on very centrist issues. You know, he was pro crime. He wants he was welfare reform. He believed in full employment and helping education. So in effect, those Southern moderate Democrats that had voted for Ronald Reagan in their droves still backed Bill Clinton in their droves. Hmm. Um, so his, his educational policy basically sparked by an administrative proposal to require all teachers to pass a competency exam. Would basically, I... realize, <laughs> they say, is this teacher competent at their job? Yes, they can be a teacher. Otherwise, you kick them out. Despite the fact that Arkansas overall rankings barely changed after this conference, after this test, the state schools under the Governor Clinton leadership saw a decline in dropout rates 
and improvement in test scores for the college admissions exam. He so led, he led uh, national thinking on education. Clinton did. Yes. Na- did. The Democratic Leadership Council. Uh, Bill Clinton was one of their main policy directors in education. He had a lot of credibility on because Arkansas had gone from forty fifth in the national education standards to fifth in the space of seven years. Yeah. Which I think everyone, and, everyone would agree is quite the transformation. It is. It is quite the big turnaround, isn't it? As as the governor of Arkansas, Clinton supported the death penalty. Something not many people know about Clinton. They did actually support the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, he actively supported affirmative action. Uh, punish. Uh, he pushed for welfare changes that would uh, encourage this assistance beneficiaries to enter the workforce and appointed mm-hmm. more African Americans to state boards, uh, commissions, and agency offices than all of his predecessors combined. And this is something that you see throughout Clinton's, Clinton's administrative um, led, uh, administrative era, is that he always appointed, he always appointed like a fairly representative cabinet, a fairly representative group of people who supported to what the population was at the time. So he, he, had, he had more women in his, uh, he had more women in his cabinet, he had more uh, ethnic minorities in his cabinet, and more black people in his cabinet. Something that was, I mean, if you, if you look if you look at the president before then, there's very few women in the cabinet at all. And, oh, yeah. I mean, Roosevelt was the first one to have a woman in the cabinet. Yes. Uh, as Secretary of Labour. Truman didn't, Ike didn't, Kennedy did, Johnson didn't, Nixon didn't, Ford didn't, Carter did, Reagan didn't. Yeah. And Bush had Elizabeth Doldeny, so, yeah, one or two. Um, he he also um, Clinton and Morris then utilized well planned sales efforts. Morris. Richard <laughs> Morris, Dick Morris, one of the most finest political consultants for Clinton. Yes, well, yeah, he, he was a political advisor and helped Clinton advance legislative objects objectives based on uh, public opinion surveys. Um, Clinton and Morris then utilised well-planned sales efforts that leveraged television, flyers and telephone banks to their convenience and state lo- to convenience state lawmakers to approve their ideas. So basically his his entire his entire his entire term as governor was kind of like an election. He was using was using televisions, he was using flyers, he was using telephone banks to to make sure that everybody approved of his laws. Rather than approve voting him in. Well, I suppose it's it's not really that different to what Franklin Roosevelt did with the with fireside chats in the early no. of the New Deal. No, it's not. Are you gonna go for the nineteen ninety two campaign? Yeah, so that, I'm gonna do this without notes. Let's see how much I remember in my head. So, nineteen ninety late nineteen ninety one, Bill Clinton decides to run for president after winning six terms as the governor of Arkansas. He's running against Tom Harkin. He's running against Paul Songus. He's running against Bob Kerry. He's running against Jerry Brown. And Clinton decides to run on very much what I would call a new Democrat platform, taking the best from the Reagan years and the best from the Ellen and Johnson years. Uh, opportunity for all, responsibility from all. Welfare is a transaction, not a grant. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, all that good idea stuff. So Clinton runs against some fairly liberal Democrats. I've got to argue. I think most people would be Charles to argue that's correct. 
and decides to run on, as a new Democrat. And then he goes in the New Hampshire primary. Now, Clinton initially polls ahead. Clinton initially polls ahead. Uh, but then, of course, with the Jennifer Flowers scandal, with a not so uh, intellectual individual saying that Clinton had committed adultery with her for 12 years. And then the draft scandal, where apparently Bill Clinton had tried to get out of the draft without any conclusive proof of him trying to do so. His polling numbers go from 25, sorry, 29 to 5% in the space of four days. And Clinton summarizes this by saying, of course, my poll numbers are down. For the last seven days, all I've been asked by the media is a woman I didn't sleep with and a draft I did not dodge, which is true. Of course, the media, as we know, despises Democrats and adores the Republicans. So Clinton, uh, in the four days before the New Hampshire primary, basically just goes around New Hampshire, goes to speeches, goes to shopping centres, goes to bowling alleys, anywhere he can find people, just wants to meet people. Now, he doesn't win the primary, he comes second. He gets 25% of the vote. So whilst it wasn't a victory, I think in the space of four days, going from 5% to 25%, when there's six other candidates in the field, is actually uh, a very good victory. And of course, that's why Bill Clinton famously said, the New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. Very good line. So Clinton sees off to his opponents. Jerry Brown, of course, leads of New York. Tom Harkin leads of Nebraska. Bob Kerry has to drop out of delegates. Paul Songers drops out because he's not going to win. Uh, of course, Tom Harkin, who was basically an FDR revivalist, Jerry Brown, who was an anti-establishment, Bob Kerry, who was a, a, a Nebraskan liberal, and Paul Songers, who was basically a socially liberal, fiscally conservative Republican. I, I mean, I don't know how they become Democrats, for heaven's sake. Anyways, Clinton wins the, the Democratic primaries and goes to the convention and gives an amazing speech about reviving the economy, fixing this, uh, this, fixing the role of government, and, you know, he says, I end tonight as it began for me. I still believe in a place called hope. And he picks Al Gore to be his vice president. You know, I end tonight as it all began for me. I still believe in a place called hope. I can still do a good Bill Clinton impression. Anyways, he picks Al Gore to be the vice president, which was a very bold pick because when you pick a VP, you're often picking someone who's, different to you ideologically and different to you regionally. So if Clinton was a Southern conservative Democrat, he'd want to pick someone like Tom Harkin, a Midwestern liberal Democrat, or someone like Bob Kerry, a Western liberal Democrat, right? But he doesn't. He picks a fellow Southern conservative Democrat. So what, is, what happens? Well, Clinton, by the convention, is by the Republican convention, is 20 points ahead in the polls which was double the lead that Michael Dukakis had in 1988 and was a bit less than what uh, Jimmy Carter had in 1976. The Republicans uh, basically have one of the worst conventions I've probably ever seen, where it's basically them yuffing about the culture war. I mean, there's been four days about culture, very important, we preserve our heritage. Oh, I see that in the deepest recession known since the Great Depression, that, that, that's the big issue of our time, is it? idiots. Uh, uh, George Bush brings James Baker back to the campaign. Jim Baker was, of course, the Foreign Secretary, Secretary of State known as, and uh, Paul Begala, who was Bill Clinton's Deputy Campaign Manager, because, of course, James Carville was the campaign manager, said that when James Baker had been reappointed to the campaign, everyone in the Clinton campaign was scared to death, because 
uh, Baker was the mastermind and behind the Ronald Reagan victory of 1984, the fifth when he got 49 and 50 states, and taking Bush from being 10, 15, 10 points behind to winning the election by 8%. And Bush decides to basically go on the attack and blame Bill Clinton for all the country's problems. All the country's problems were Bill Clinton's fault. Uh, blame his record of Arkansas, blame his record on tax increases, etc. Uh, Ross Perot, of course, is running in this election. Ross Perot runs as a third party on, you know, fiscally conservative, balancing the budget, tax increases and spending cuts and socially liberal platform. And two weeks before he drops out, he's on 37% of the vote. 37%. Ross Perot could have been president, for heaven's sake. But then you have the loyalty pledges and, you know, he's he's digging on people's past and he dropped out. And then, of course, he re-got into the race, but that's for another one. He got he obviously pro got back into the race, pulling at 14, 15%, which is pretty respectable actually for a third party, I must say. Uh, Clinton famously in the second debate wins. Clinton really seals the deal in the second debate when a woman asked uh, all three candidates, How has the recession each personally affected your lives? And if you don't understand the problems personally, how would you be able to tackle the problems that are ailing them? Bush basically says, words to the effect of i don't understand the question you see you know what was it are you suggesting that if someone has means that the national defect def- that can't affect them well i'm not trying i'm not understanding what you're trying to say i'm trying to help me out sort of thing you, you didn't get them and i you know you didn't understand the question clinton being himself does this for investing more better Sorry, education that's still George system. Bush. thank Kevin you clinton. glad to clarify tell me how it affected you again um you know people who lost their well, jobs yeah. lost their homes uh-huh well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. Every year, Congress and the president sign laws that makes us, make us do more things. It gives us less money to do it with. I see people in my state, middle-class people, their taxes have gone up in Washington and their services have gone down while the wealthy have gotten tax cuts. I, I have seen what's happened in this last four years when in my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. And I've been out here for 13 months, meeting in meetings just like this, ever since October, with people like you all over America, people that have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, lost their health insurance. What I want you to understand is the national debt is not the only cause of that. It is because America has not invested in its people it is because we have not grown. It is because we've had 12 years of trickle-down economics. We've gone from first to 12th in the world in wages. We've had four years where we produced no private sector jobs. Most people are working harder for less money than they were making 10 years ago. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. And this decision you're about to make better be about what kind of economic theory you want. Not just people saying, I'm going to go fix it, but what are we going to do? I think we have to do is invest in American jobs, American education, control American health care costs, and bring the American people together again. Thank you, Governor Clinton. That answer pretty much sealed the deal between the American people. Uh, There we are. Sorry, just kidding. This clip will not be played yet. This is when we do the 96 re-elect. Where? Oh, for fuck's sake. What? Feel when you like when you when you want to find a clip and then you can't find it. YouTube delivered. There we are. I found it now. 
Oh, you know that. What? You couldn't find the clip. Yeah, now I found it. Anyways, that's for later. So, Clinton uh, then runs on, still running New Democrat platforms, still running on, you know, it's the economy stupid, fixing the recession, and Bush is still going attack, 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 attack. You know, Bush was fighting on integrity and trust. Because remember, George Bush, at the start, at, at the late, mid-1991, by about winter 1991, had an approval rating that stood at 91% at the start of 91. 91. Now, all right, kept coming down because of the recession and whittled away the improvement down to about 36. But people liked the man. He was this amazing foreign policy president, but the worst domestic policy president before the last guy. <laughs> the worst domestic <laughs> policy president since Ronald Reagan. Now, uh, Clinton, of course, gets a massive boost when a couple of days before the election, because remember, the, on the on the Thursday before poll, the republic the the, the poll was tied forty forty. James, the screen's frozen. It was tied forty forty, and then of course Iran Contra came back, where you know the Reagan scandal, selling arms hostages, showing Bush knew more than he let on, and polls collapsed, and of course Bill Clinton won with forty three percent of the votes. Forty three Clinton. 37 Bush, 19 Ross Perot, Clinton winning 370 electoral college votes, and George Bush winning uh, 168 electoral college votes. And the Democrats yeah. had what, 260 seats in the House, 57 seats in the Senate. No, it was 258 in the House, 57 in the Senate. Now, yeah. go on, tell us about tell about tell us about the Clinton president. Tell us about his first term domestic policies. All right, so Clinton really wanted to change America, as I've showed you through that speech. And he did it through a few ways. Um, first, let me point out, Clinton was the youngest, uh, the third youngest president in history when he took office in January 1993 at the age of 46 years old. Uh, the 1993 budget deal that was sorted between Clinton and, Foley and uh, Clinton, Foley and Gore to increase taxes and to cut spending was passed by... 218 to 216 and 50 to 50. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the only few times where the vice president got the vote. Democrats the voting against you in the House and seven in the Senate, because that budget deal had basically everyone had something to hate about it. If you were a Democrat, yeah. you do not want the Medicare cuts, you do not want the benefit cuts, you do not want the work subsidy cuts. And if you were a Republican, what do you mean you're going to raise taxes on the rich? Who do you think you are? <laughs> Well, the poor are hurting and the deepest recession we know since the, since, since the Depression in 1932. We don't care. Our rich people makes give us to our party. Uh, so both parties. So remember, that budget deal, not one Republican voted for it. Not one. Jeffords, Spectre, Simpson, not one of them voted for the bill. Shaffy, even fucking Lincoln Shaffy didn't vote for the damn thing. Yeah. Well, um, Clinton also passed the Family Medical Leave Act, the Violence Against Women Act, and as well the Brady Bill, uh, which was the assault uh, weapons ban. Yeah. The no, bill specific. No, it wasn't. Oh, sorry. The, the bill, uh, the Brady Bill, and the assault yeah, weapons ban. Sorry, man. The, the assault weapons ban came along with the crime bill in '94. Yeah. Sorry, my mistake. My mistake. The Brady Bill and the assault weapons ban. No. Do you want to become the, a journalist? <laughs> the, the assault weapon ban um, 
the bill specifically amended the federal criminal code to ban the manufacturing, transfer, or possession of a semi-automatic assault weapon. Um, because there are so many modifications that can be made to firearms, uh, and because the bill did not outright uh, did not outright outlaw all semi-automatic weapons, many of these weapons continue to be used lawfully despite the ban on more than a dozen particular rifles and features and guns. So, um, so it was becoming less and less effective as it comes on. I mean, as you can see, it was ineffective for the fact that there are still mass shootings with semi-auto, semi-automatic weapons today and fully automatic weapons. Yeah, but in fairness, there was only what, about, wasn't it two in that whole decade? Yes, there was There was two. Was I mean, and Virginia Tech, those were the two that happened that decade. Yeah. yeah. We've had, what, nearly 15 in just the last five years? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Mass shooting. Um, yeah. The biggest of the flaws of the bill, though, the assault weapons ban, as good as it was practically, you know, the, the, why did the assault weapons ban pass? It passed because Republicans got something. They got the 100,000 cops on the street. They got the mandatory minimums. They got three strikes and you're out. And therefore, we wanted to ban assault weapons. The issue was in rural southern communities where the Democrats have been around for 150 years, that was the final straw for a lot of people. They, in fact, gave the Republicans the House. Hmm. Yeah. But the biggest, uh, the biggest flaw in this uh, assault weapon ban was that oh. it, it only applied to certain kinds of weapons um, and large capacity magazines that were produced after it. It was signed into law, therefore it was legal to own or sell a semi-automatic weapon as long as it was produced before uh, produced earlier than the law was actually implemented. Oh god. So any so any any crazy psychopath with a semi-automatic weapon before nineteen ninety was allowed to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> After nineteen ninety four he had to get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. um, when was this made? December the twentieth December the thirtieth, nineteen ninety three. Oh that's different then. <laughs> <laughs> that's allowed. That's allowed. That's allowed. Um, the Clinton healthcare plan. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. In, in addition to signing the North American Free Trade Agreement, which Dad well, probably doesn't well. like. Yeah, <laughs> I knew to be a doubt. I saw that with contempt. Uh, which basically, which removed trade barriers. We did United it States, Canada, to all working manufacturers. It did that to them. It gave them the middle finger and told them to off. Oh, NAFTA did more to destroy the unions, more to destroy the environment, did more to destroy the workers than anything Bill Clinton did. Or even, no, wait, no. Reagan did a lot more by just getting up in the morning and thinking. <laughs> um, well, yeah. he, he, proposed, he also proposed measures to lower the federal budget deficit. Yes, very good. Uh, the Clinton healthcare plan was, in effect, a plan to provide a card issued by the federal government to ensure care to the individual free of charge. But it was kind of going for a form of free health care. It didn't pass in the Congress because Congress was brought in. It didn't pass in the Congress because Congress wasn't brought in, and as a result, there was a lack of consensus. Stupidly. Because, stupidly. But because, basically, because Congress wasn't involved in the making of this, uh, in making of this bill, they all went, they all went, nah, you want to vote for it. Well, that's the issue. Got I remember, look, when the, the, the during the healthcare, you had the Employer Competition Act, you had the Managed Control Act, two healthcare bills, 
that were basically passed with Republican Democrat votes. It was 88 to 11, which basically had a universal insurance system with private comp with private private providing, but with government oversight. So basically everyone would take out private medical insurance, but the government would oversee the practice. So for example, private insurance providers could had to cover the bills. They couldn't charge more than 10%. They had to cover for all the people. And that was actually, a, and most Democrats today would love that. But we ran through the Clinton care plan. There's actually a very good bills, a very good Clinton care was actually very good. But it was the issue that the same that Obama had, they didn't consult Congress. When Lyndon Johnson did, right, they say, they say, ah, but LBJ did Medicare, he just ran, walked into them, threat to cut all their balls off if they didn't vote for it. That's true. But LBJ and Clinton are two different things. Lyndon Johnson put the Medicare bill on the floor. It took three hours to be voted through. Three hours. Because he said, I'm putting nothing else on the floor and you will vote for that or I will come over to the Senate and I will smash your heads on the desk and force you to vote for it, which knowing LBJ, you probably would have. Clinton spent six months debate getting his proposal debated. Why? Why not just go through the Senate, put one bill on the floor, the health care bill, vote it through, treat it as a budget reconciliation, say for 51 votes you require, and ram it through the Senate. It's not hard. Yeah. But yeah, they, they, they uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well indeed. Hindsight, hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't oh, it? It's not hindsight, it's precedent. Johnson did it. Well, it happened once. It's not a precedent. Franklin Roosevelt got the New Deal fast. Did you see Roosevelt stomping around the country? Well, the re, the re, no, because no, because FDR had FDR had a Democratic Congress and Senate. That's why I got it fast. No, not 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 not. Yeah, he did. He he did he he did in that sense, but he didn't have the support as FDR did. FDR, everybody supported FDR. He Even the Republicans supported FDR. Yeah, no one could say they didn't support. In, that first, in the first and third term, if you didn't support FDR, someone would go back and say, grab him by the air, it's him. He's clearly Clinton, Clinton didn't. Clinton didn't have the loyalty that FDR did. Because Clinton wanted to be everybody's friend. Franklin Roosevelt commanded respect by walking into the room. Or... No, let's not, let's not even make it, no, no. And Lyndon Johnson commanded respect because Lyndon Johnson had been in the Congress for 37 years before he became the president. And because he'd been there for so long, he knew everybody, he knew what they wanted, he knew how to get what he wanted. Clinton had one advantage, was because Clinton was a Democrat to his fingertips, he knew how far he could take the party modernization, but he'd never been in the Congress and he didn't know how to deal with them. He didn't know that you had to bring in Republican and Democrat leaders and bring them into the White House and talk to them and get compromise. Which he did, by the way, he did do that in his second term, though. So, you know. yeah. At least he learned from his mistakes. Yeah. Unlike President well, Obama, who never learned from any mistakes. I can't wait until we get into that episode to see just, later. I'll just be criticising him for the whole episode. Well, you've got two criticising episodes coming up, haven't you? You've got Bush, then you've got Obama. Yeah, we'll have gore in between. And then you've got Trump. Oh, that'll be fun to do. <laughs> that will just be me just taking the piss out of him. Um, do you remember the time when he leaked the Russian inquiry into the Russian ambassador's office? Do you remember the time when he told everyone to drink bleach? Do you remember the time when he said praise white supremacists? I don't know if we'll do that carnival barking clown. I don't know, maybe we will. 
But anyways, so yeah, so tell us about go further with his with his domestic policies in the first term. Remember, well, this is now you know, welfare reform will do. Yeah. He, he also had the crime bill uh, yeah, of nineteen ninety four, which the de- which dealed with law enforcement in which dealed with law enforcement in crime. Uh, it became it became a law in 1994. I mean, it's one. It is the greatest crime measure in American history, with 356 pages, 100,000 more police officers, and 90, uh, 9.7 billion dollars in funding for prisons that that were created with extensive involvement from season uh, from season from ex cops, basically. The legislation sponsored by Texas U.S. Representative Jack Brooks was approved by Congress and made official by President Clinton. Now, the fact the fact that he got support from uh, he got support from uh, Texas uh, from Texas U.S. Uh, U.S. Representative Jack Brooks made made it more popular than Congress and Senate. Undoubtedly, I'm guessing the fact the fact the fact that they had a hundred thousand more police officers made it appealing to the Republicans. The oh, fact yeah. that there was yeah the the fact. The fact, the fact that there was uh, gun, gun measures in here, like I've just talked about there, made it appealing to the Democrats. I mean, it was practically going to get voted through. That is and the it way did. legislation. That's the way you do legislation. You create stuff that both parties are never going to turn down. Republicans are not going to vote down putting 100,000 more cops on the streets, three strikes a year out, and having more prisons. Democrats are not going to vote down the biggest increase in prevention programs since Lyndon Johnson and having an assault weapons ban and the Brady Bill. You create equal measures that both parties cannot turn down and then you make them agree with it. Yeah. That's how you legislate. Um, so that, that's basically most of his policy, well, major policy that he did. But um, I'm going to talk about his cabinet now, what he did with his cabinet. Now, many women and people of colour were appointed to important government positions by Clinton, notably Jeanette Reno, the first <laughs> female attorney general. Well, the first female ge- attorney general <laughs> in the United States. Madeleine, uh, Madeleine Albright, the first female secretary of the United yeah, States. Madeleine Albright was very good secretary of state, yeah. She was good. Um, and maybe, maybe one of the best opponents that he made, in uh, 1993, he chose Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be the member of the Supreme Court. She was the first court, uh, she Andrew was the second court, second female justice in history. Yeah, Sandra O'Connor was the first, and Ruth was yeah. second. And Stephen Breyer was third, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed 96 to 3. Stephen Breyer was confirmed 87 to 9. Even though they were delusionists on the Constitution, they were still absolutely amazing people. Yeah, boo to Janet Reno. What an awful attorney general she was. Costing, Are you going to talk about costing us two thousand by deporting Elian Gonzalez back to Cuba, therefore making many Cuban Democrats vote for Bush? <laughs> her fault. Her fault as well. As a long as I will blame for that. And those, those five hundred Cuban uh, Democrats living in Florida who voted for Bush. <laughs> Guarantee, imagine that as well. How many? How many votes for them? Two hundred and seventy. Oh my God's sake! That's the margin. Yes, yes, I know, I know. <laughs> Anyways, um, but yeah, because remember, what was it? Fairgood Marshall, Lyndon Johnson put the first black Supreme Court justice on the court. Justice Marshall, a titan of a figure. Uh, Ronnie Reagan puts the first woman on the court, and Lyndon uh, Clinton puts the first woman on second woman on the court and puts women in his cabinet. Good. Yeah. Tell us about go on. Tell us about the Gingrich Revolution then. 
McGinley Bridge Revolution. 1994 midterms, this is more known to the masses. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. So basically, when, uh, basically, in 1994, the midterms, um, Will Clinton lost quite badly. And and New and New Gimbridge became uh, was it House Majority Leader? Yeah. Yes, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. I'm not. My hands. I want my head in my hands. Not because of you. Because of what happened. Oh wait, that's, I still got PTSD. Years <laughs> of holding the house. You can't much worse. After forty years of holding the house, the Democrats lose the house. Yeah. Nearly what was it? Was it lost? It, it was fifty-two the last time we lost it, wasn't it? Cameron makes this cops. The Democrats lose. They lose fifty odd seats in the House of Representatives. Then they lose. Uh, what was it? Nearly ten seats in the Senate. Hmm. They get absolutely cleaned. They get cleavered in in the House. No president's done this badly for the Democrats ever. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Carter. So, I mean terms. Johnson, Kennedy midterms, they all get to hold on to Congress and we lose it. Yeah, and it must have been it must have been pretty scary because because he would have thought this is the end of his president. There's no way the Democrats are going to re-elect me to be um to to run for president at the time, possibly because his approval rate was what thirty seven point two percent. He had Gingrich breathing down his neck. There were many liberals that didn't really like him. So yeah, I suppose so, but. The Republicans went utterly crazy in 1995. Yeah. Shutting down the federal government but, over not cutting Medicare. But it did, did save Clinton a bit there. It did, it did save him a bit when they shut down the federal government. Shutting down the entire government because you didn't want to cut Medicare. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Couldn't they give us a better chance of being re-elected than that? Right. So yeah, well, uh, let's look at his foreign policy. So throughout the, Bill Clinton, his first term, has three major foreign policy uh, points. It's Somalia, Rwanda, and Bosnia. So Somalia, that was, of course, uh, a humanitarian mission started by President Bush very wisely. President Clinton built on it by trying to make it a nation-building mission with killing uh, Ideed, General Ideed, the psychopath that he was, and in effect to rebuild as a democracy in Somalia. The issue was, uh, during one of the missions, you had two Black Hawks that got shot down. That's where the term Black Hawk Down comes from, certainly the film. And 17 Americans were killed in gunfire, pinned down by gunfire. And there was the iconic video of an American, dead American, being dragged through the streets with a bunch of you know, individuals jumping up and down as an American soldier was in effect killed and humiliated in effect. And that you had senators and congresspeople saying, we're not going to do another invasion. That's it now, because that was too humiliating. So when Rwanda comes along, where they have 800,000 deaths in the space of 100 days, a slaughtering on the epic horrendous scale, uh, what does President Clinton do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Doesn't lift a finger. Nothing. Not one American American veteran war goes in and helps out. They let them to their deaths because of isolationist, nationalist bullshit. Mm. I mean, don't get me started on on the foreign conflicts and my view on it. Anyways. Bosnia, 
this is where he makes up ground as an amazing job with Bosnia, where uh, Milosevic and the Serbs were in effect basically slaughtering Muslims on an epic scale, disgustingly slaughtering them. We were watching it. We tried to do a diplomatic solution, and then Clinton basically sent uh, F-15s in and basically blew it up, blew up Bosnia, mm-hmm. dropping bombs, night raids, destroying uh, the Croats, the Serbs camps, and then force, and then of course forcing them to do the Dayton Peace Accord. And that's how you do a military invasion. That's how you do it. You bring enemies to their knees and then you negotiate once the enemy is on their knees. Can't we see the dark side of Davkan? <laughs> Aggressors must be thrown out. They must be thrown out with such force, such humiliation, that they can never aggress again. That's how you deal with aggressors. These you know, the people on the left wing say, no, we can sit down and negotiate. There is no negotiation with evil. We do not negotiate with evil. We do not negotiate with people who there are values. We throw them out. And not regime change, because we saw we see with Iraq and Iran how bad regime change was. But it, <laughs> it, we don't we don't do regime change, but instead we if 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 a dictator invades another country, we if we get them out of that country. Yeah. But we don't go into their country and then get rid of them. Yeah, that's exactly how it started with Saddam Hussein, isn't it? Saddam Hussein, yes. <laughs> I love because uh, James Baker said massively goes, "Is a lot of people um, when Baker when they won the first Gulf War, Baker said there are a lot of people who said to me, why didn't you take Saddam out?' And after two thousand three, no one will ever ask me that. No one asks me that question anymore." <laughs> <laughs> Right, so... Um... After Bosnia, he does the Clinton Doctrine, which, in my view, was a piece of masterful idea, which is basically, Tony Blair later calls it humanitarian interventionism, where there is conflict in the world and we can do something to stop human suffering. We then, as Americans, have the moral obligation to do it. And that, in my view, is my view on foreign policy, whether it's international development, whether it's infrastructure development in the third world, whether it's granting a form of universal basic income, whether it's uh, encouraging industry to start up in the third world, you internationally develop other countries and help them to grow themselves, like China's done with Africa. China have led the way on this masterfully. And I won't praise them for many things. In fact, I won't praise them for many things at all, but on Africa, they did a first-class job. Hmm. which America could have led on. America could have led on that easily. Anyways. Should I talk about the 1996 yeah, re-elect? Talk about the 1996 re-elect, come on then. Right, so in 90, as 1996 started, the Republicans were in a bit of a crisis due to the government shutdown. They were. And the Democrats under President Clinton had an effective... Has an effective economic record with 10.5 million new jobs. Uh, 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 we're going to get the Clinton record out there, James. One of ideas. No, now let's balance the budget. Uh, Falling crime rate to help people have the tools to make the most of their own lives. Four years ago, you took me on faith. Now there's a record. Ten and a half million more jobs, rising incomes, falling crime rates and welfare rolls, a strong America at peace. We are better off than we were four years ago. Let's keep it going. We cut the deficit by 60%. Now let's balance the budget and protect Medicare, Medicaid, education, and the environment. 
We cut taxes for 15 million working Americans. Now let's pass the tax cuts for education and child rearing, help with medical emergencies and buying a home. We passed family and medical leave. Now let's expand it so more people can succeed as parents and in the workforce. We passed 100,000 police, the assault weapons brand, the Brady Bill. Now let's keep going by finishing the work of putting the police on the street and tackling juvenile gangs. We passed welfare reform. Now let's move a million people from welfare to work. And most important, let's make education our highest priority so that every eight-year-old will be able to read, every 12-year-old can log on to the internet, every 18-year-old can go to college. We can build that bridge to the 21st century, and I look forward to discussing exactly how we're going to do it. That sums up his record quite masterfully in the first term. It does, Dad. It, it definitely does. But then, I mean, I do, I, do, I do like the fact how he started with, you, you, you came into me uh, with faith. Now you have a record of what I've done. <laughs> we have a record of achievements. Now, so go on, tell us about the 96 we elect. All right, so the Republicans had a long primary, which didn't really help their election either. Oh, they all went to uh, with... They were all making absolute hyenas out of themselves. Yes, exactly, yeah. So you had Phil Graham, Lamar, mm. Alexander, mm. Pat, Pat Buchan, is that his name? Buchanan, yes. Buchanan, that's it. Literally the second you said it, I, I have read, I'm a bigot tattooed on his forehead. Um, Steve Forbes and Bob Dole. Um, yeah, let's go, can I just quickly mock all those candidates except Bob Dole? You can, though. Right. Bill Graham, the man who believes, and I quote, the banking industry deserves no regulation. Lamar Alexander, the man who advocated for privatization of every single school in this country. Pat Buchanan, racist, anti-Semitic, anti-women, anti-gay, every nasty label you can put on a human being. As I, I said, Patrick Buchanan might as well have the words, I'm a bigot, sitting in his forehead. Steve Bobbs, who wanted a 10% flat rate tax doesn't work and Bob Dole who was initially a moderate centrist guy who shifted to the right by 96 but a good guy nevertheless yeah okay so his favorite his favorability scores were in the 40 to 50 percent range he won the primary election Clinton this is Clinton now yeah. Clinton. he won the primary election uh with more than 88 percent of the public vote facing not public vote, the Democratic vote, but facing no significant challenge from the inside of the Democratic Party. Mm. At the 1996 Democratic National Convention, he was renominated by the party after earning the support of 420, uh, 4,277 delegates out of 4,289. So, <laughs> that, was, that was like 99% he won. That's like Chinese elections. We'll give them a few votes just to make sure he doesn't think it's rigged. You can look realistic. <laughs> okay. But yeah, he was, was 13 points ahead at the time of the convention, Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Republicans chose the Senate Majority Leader, Bob Dole. Great man. Who was 73, who was 73 years old at the time. A bit old, but as, a great man, nevertheless. As soon as a as candidate for president, um, for president in the general election with Jack Kemp as a v, as a running uh, for two VP. Two great men. Two great yeah. men. Bob oh, Dole, was... food stamps, who did help for the inner cities, who fixed Social Security in 83, and Jack Kemp, who was the most pro-union Republican with a 100% AFL-CIO voting record and made his focus as uh, Housing and Development Secretary the focus of regenerating inner cities just through enterprise zones and lower taxation. 
the only issue with any of those people no, is that they were against Bill Clinton. Clinton and Gore were an amazing ticket. Dolan Kemp were very good as well, but Dolan Kemp yeah. were very good. I, but I, I, I do think Dolan Kemp could have won quite a few elections if they weren't against Clinton. I think there are a lot of people that would have easily had Bob Dole and Jack Kemp say in 1988 or in 2000. Mm. Easily. The difference between Bob Dole and Al Gore would be minuscule. Actually, I yeah. would argue that the difference between 1998 Bob Dole and 1996 Bill Clinton went pretty minuscule as well. True. Yeah. It's just 1998 Bob Dole went a bit batshit crazy, but 1998 yes. Bob Dole was. <laughs> Very sane, very realistic. There, there was also a strong third party again, uh, candidate Ross Perot. Yeah, it's good old Ross. Ross we love Ross. A Texas, uh, he was a Texas businessman who had previously run as an independent in the 1992 presidential Ross, election. Was Ross's running mate in 96. Sorry? He was Ross Perot's running mate in 96. So it was, it was Stockdale the first time, Admiral Stockdale. Was it like Pat Cho or something? I have no idea, though. I have no idea. No one. I mean, Joel Perot, nobody cares. That's the thing. No, I do because I like Ross Perot a great deal. But the thing is, Ross was he wasn't even allowed in the debates. That was his issue. They didn't even allow him to come and sit in the debates. If he comes sit in the debates, he could have got at least uh, James Campbell, who the fuck he is. Isn't it the guy in the soup? What? The Campbell soup picture. Yeah, possibly. Anyways. So pros aren't allowed in debates, so it was Dole and Clinton, they did two debates. The trouble with the Dole campaign was Dole, Dole, where was Bob Dole's humour? Bob Dole is known for being funny. He's known for it, for heaven's sake. I mean, oh dear. But he's also known being intellectual and being good, um, yeah. a good guy. I mean, famously, when he was given the... Uh, <laughs> wait, I'm going to put this on. Basically, after, the, after Clinton won the re-elect... Bob Dole was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which you know, James, is the highest civilian honour. Yeah. Yeah. It was the highest civilian honour. Bill Clinton awarded to him because of his record of service. Right? Would you like to know how Bob Dole started the speech? (laughs) Yes, I would love to. (laughs) This was January the 5th, 1997, after the presidential election, okay? Hi, Robert J. Dole. Do solemnly swear. <laughs> For those of you who are less averse into American politics, that's how you start a presidential inauguration. When you're under the Bible, like, do solemnly swear. <laughs> I mean, it's the old, I mean, I mean, he was humorous. Um, when he said, you know, the president talked a bit about tobacco, and now I'll try and puff on that remark, but 
you know, I mean, famously, the, one of the funniest was Ted Kennedy when Bob Dole remarked on Ted Kennedy in, in the debate, and he goes, uh, "We were all talk." <laughs> Bob Dole starts. He goes, "When I'm now back in the Senate, I said, uh, now, gentlemen, let me tax your memories.'" And Kennedy stood up and said, "Oh, why we don't thought of that?" But <laughs> <laughs> anyways, so go on, tell us about the campaign strategy for Dole. Oh, for Dole, well, Dole's campaign strategy, well. I'll go, I'll go for Clinton. First. I do Clinton's uh, yeah, okay, fine. Clinton's campaign chose to address Dole's age as an issue. Um, but it's they did it indirectly rather than directly. Yeah. So basically, what what they did was a slogan as Burning Bridge is to the future, which in contrast, Dole's frequent claimed that he was build, uh, building a bridge to the past. Sorry? Building a bridge to the future. Not burning a bridge here, yeah, building a bridge. I've even yeah. written building down here. I've said burning. No idea where I got that from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, you want to build a bridge to the 21st century that's wide enough and strong enough to take us to our best days. That one, yeah. Yeah. Um, The Clinton campaign attacked the 15% across-the-board tax cut proposed by Dole slash Kemp, calling it a $550 billion risky tax scheme. Wait, wait. Gore v. Kemp. Where where is it? Al Gore. Al Gore makes a joke about the the tax cut that, to this day, I still find very, very funny. What is it? That's Tax scheme. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay, basically, it's talking about the 15% across more tax cut, and Jack Kent basically says it's going to lead to a massive pouring of wealth. It'll be like Niagara Falls, okay? So what does Scott say? Niagara Falls. The problem with this version of Niagara Falls is that Senator Dole and Mr. Kemp would put the American economy in a barrel and send it over the falls. It is a risky 500 and <laughs> billion dollar tax scheme <laughs> they would put the economy into a barrel and send it over the falls <laughs> oh dear god um, well so Dole's campaign strategy on the other hand was so because well, he, he understood that the Republican-controlled South doesn't really need that much, uh, doesn't need that much funding diverted to it, and he realised that throughout the previous elections, lots of them had been poured into the South. Yeah. So, in, uh, so instead, he he made an all-out effort for California, yeah. a state where President Clinton uh, has held one of the biggest two-digit leads for a month, and fucking stupid idea. Uh, it was a, it was it was a it was really you win the rust belt indiana ohio yeah. illinois wisconsin michigan pennsylvania west virginia that's how you win you get the upper south that clinton won you do not say let's go to california for god's sake you focus on the upper south and the middle west and the 15 percent cross the tax cut was basically going to get the results down to zero 11 13 and 24. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and because of Dole's stupid strategy, Clinton defeated Dole handedly on the election day, um, be- becoming the first Democrat to win two presidential elections in a row since FDR. That, that I, didn't, I didn't really 
realise until re- realise until today uh, today after well doing research, and I d- and I didn't put two and two together. I knew I knew Bill Clinton won two. I knew FDI won four, but I didn't realise that Bill Clinton was the only Democrat between those two periods to win two. Because JFK died before he could do one. second. Two. LBJ did one. One. Jimmy Carter only won one. Yeah. With an increasing share of the vote, increasing electoral votes. Yeah. Exactly like FDR as well. Do you think he would have won a third? Who, Clinton? Yeah. Easily. So then he could have gone for four of the two terms. James, he left by election day 2000, he had a 66% approval rating. In 96, he had, I think it was 52, and he had 66 by 2000. He he would have wiped the floor with the drunken, idiotic prick, right-wing conservative southern governor of Texas who has all the intelligence of a P that is George W. Bush. (laughs) Right, so... He won. He won 379 electoral votes to yeah. Dole's 159. He did. Um, whilst he won a landslide, yeah. um, it didn't change Congress at all. So no. the Republicans still kept control of Congress, basically. New, Bob Dole won them the Congress. That's, yes. That's the legacy. Dole did such good campaigning in the battleground that, in effect, everyone knew whilst Clinton was going to win, Bob Dole ensured they kept the Senate and the House with basically the same majorities. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, thank you, Bob, for that. I mean, would you? I mean, that is, in my view, the best form of government. In my view, before Trump, that's and um, before Obama, and before Bush, that's the best form of government you need: a Republican president with a Democrat Congress, a Democrat president with a Republican Congress. Keep you in check. But yeah, the Democrats basically, the, the, there was the De- Republicans actually picked up. Uh, two Senate seats in the in the Senate, and they actually picked up. I think it was what five seats in the House they picked up. Wait, ninety six. Yeah, they lost three seats in the House, but they picked up two more seats in the Senate. Mm. So, um, okay, that's fine. That's fine. So Clinton, of course, wins re-election as president, first one since Franklin D. Roosevelt to win a re-election. And he comes out, in effect, in the 97 inaugural and basically quotes fucking flipping Isaiah from the Bible and speaks about this. But to turn the page, people return to only partisan battles of the last four years. The American people return to office, a president of one party and a Congress of another. Surely they did not do this to advance the politics of petty bickering and extreme partisanship they plainly deplore. The one part of that speech that I think mattered more to him than any other was his reference to this scriptural phrase to be the repairer of the breach from Isaiah. They call all us instead to be repairers of the breach. He really felt like he had come through this trial by fire. And by the way, you forgot to explain to us the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. Did I forget to do that? Yeah. Oh, well, I'll do that now then. Do that now. So, on August 22nd, 1996, mm. um, 
the Welfare Reform Act came into play. Yeah. It's basically the person. It gave people the personal opportunity and, and work responsibility. It's basically not the case. That's what the bill the was work- called, dickhead. Yeah. It was the Personal Opportunity and Work Responsibility Act, which in effect forced people to yeah. work after two years and allowed five years of lifetime benefits. Universal enforcement of child support, reducing welfare for single parent families, more, uh, more land for two parent families, and abolishing aid for dependent children with state controlled temporary assistance for needy families. What a stupid fucking bill that was. Oh, that was off that was off the scale level of stupidity. Because what that in effect did was it basically abolished the welfare state. Right? That's that's what it did. You know, four singles have only a five-year limit of maximum benefit claim and forces them into poverty. All right, enforcing child support is very good. I, I agree with that. Enforcing a work link programs is very good. I agree with that. But you basically abolished the welfare system. And I'm sorry, that's not what Democrats are meant to do. Democrat, it's all well and good to do what Michael Bloomberg did was mayor of New York when he made basically the conditional cash transfer payments, which was known as uh, you know, welfare as a transaction, not a grant, basically stuff like paying poorer children to go to have 95% attendance at school and stuff like that, right? That's good. I agree with CCT. And I do think that people should earn their welfare grants in some form of another by having responsibility. But you don't abolish it. You do not. Because, fuck's sake, we, why do we create the welfare state? We create the welfare state because there was insane levels of poverty in the inner cities. Horrendous levels of child poverty. And it's a function of the government to do something about it. Not to just abolish it, which is what the deal did. And I remember if he, and everyone, anyone who says, oh, well, I'm sure Clinton didn't think that, just listen to Clint, it's Clinton's own words. And obey the law. Right. Oh, that's two immigrants. America's businesses, large and small. Nope. It's five major corporate. Nope. That's it. Well. Oh, you're now in San, you're now in San Francisco, James. I know. I don't know how you do that. Me neither. Fund those welfare checks into private recipients. Training, transportation, and people who now must work. This is Bill Clinton's 1997 State of the Union, basically explaining welfare reform. James, you're not in a 1974 television box. (laughs) (laughs) Of moving from welfare... Congress enacted landmark welfare reform legislation demanding that all able-bodied recipients assume the responsibility of moving from welfare to work. Now, each and every one of us has to fulfill our responsibility, indeed our moral obligation, to make sure that people who now must work can work. we must act to meet a new goal. Two million more people off the welfare rolls by the year 2000. Here is my plan. Tax credits and other incentives for businesses that hire people off welfare. Incentives for job placement firms and states to create more jobs for welfare recipients. Training, transportation, and childcare to help people go to work. Now, I challenge every state 
turn those welfare checks into private sector paychecks. I challenge every religious congregation, every community nonprofit, every business to hire someone off welfare. And I'd like to say especially to every employer in our country who ever criticized the old welfare system, you can't blame that old system anymore. We have torn it down. Now do your part. Give someone on welfare the chance to go to work. That last line should, sh should shatter any doubts. To anyone who criticized that old welfare system, you can't criticize it anymore. We have torn it down. Now do your part. Torn it down. Keywords there. Torn it down. Mm. Anyways, what a shit welfare reform bill that was. I'm sorry, it was so ghastly. You can reform welfare. You can reform it by linking unemployment compensation to the minimum wage and making them go to work in return for it. You can reform welfare by, by reforming, by abolishing all cash benefits and replacing them with subsidies for food, for housing, for uh, the utilities, except, and that's it, right? You, but then and for able-bodied people, put work requirements onto it. There are many ways you can reform the system of welfare. You can put a limit on child benefit recipients. You can put income limits on welfare recipients. There are many sensible ways you can do welfare reform. I believe James knows, and I think a lot of people know me know, I'm a, that welfare reform has become a big passion of mine. You do not do welfare reform in such a way that you're kicking the poor in the teeth. You do it in such a way that you empower the poor, the working class amongst us to get better paid jobs. Like an idea was developing today, because I look at my idea of full employment, I said that we should that we should look at the idea that for any person who's on unemployment compensation for more than two months and hasn't found a job in the private sector, the government should guarantee him a job within the public sector as a means of creating a safety net. But you cannot, honestly. Anyways, that rant will be for another day. Why, Clinton, why welfare reform was a massive failure under Clinton. It was a massive failure, which Barack Obama made worse, may I also continue to add. Funny, it's always Democrats that, that, that make fucking welfare reform worse. Republicans can never touch it because every time they do, millions of poor people walk in and go, hey, you bastard! Democrats <laughs> do it. Oh, well, it, it's, you know, okay, fair enough. Ronald Reagan with his Alzheimer's ridden head would have been proud of that. He could remember what was actually going on. Anyways, I've got to do second-term domestic policies now that I've probably just about offended every conservative in this country. And everybody with Alzheimer's. And everybody with Alzheimer's have been severely offended as well by my remarks. Anyways, I wasn't joking about Alzheimer's. There was a joke about Ronald Reagan I was making there. I would never pick on uh, people with disabilities. As one, as a guy with disabilities myself, I think it would be extremely nasty to pick on other people with disabilities. Now... James is like, yeah, I know, Dad. We've all known it for years. Why else would you be so fucking rude to people? <laughs> okay, so Bill Clinton comes into his second term. He has with 11 million new jobs, the highest, lowest inflation in, in 27 years, and the lowest unemployment in 27 years. Clinton and Rikopis calls for the repairing of the breach in political division. And Newt Gingrich had clearly stated his ambition to get things done with the administration because after the dispute of the 95-96 government shutdown, he concluded that Clinton wasn't some weak, gutless centrist. 
he was someone who was probably much more confident, much more uh, intellectual than he was, and someone he knew he had to work with. Um, and actually, they showed how they could work together. The Browns Budget Act in 1997, the uh, which uh, Erskine Bowles negotiated, which had tax cuts for the middle class. It had the S-CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Initiative, uh, they gave all uh, young children low-cost health insurance in return for total coverage on costs. It had uh, strengthening. It had Medicare Plus Choice, which is known as, now known as Medicare Part C, where the Medicare would pay private insurance companies to cover individuals, but in return, the private insurance company had to cover the individual all medical bills, all costs. Otherwise, they would be sued by the federal government. 52 million people are Medicare Part C, and not one of them has to pay a penny in out-of-pocket costs. Prove my point. And that worked. That was a balanced budget agreement. That was probably bipartisan. They blew it when they did the fucking fast-track trade authority legislation, which was so stupid. It's stupid. It doesn't even qualify how stupid it was. They wanted to basically um, remove Congress's power on voting on trade agreements. That was the second initiative of the bipartisan. What? So you want Congress to vote for a bill that would remove their power on something? That, that's suicidal. That's mental. <laughs> it's not let's fix social security. It's not let's fix Medicare or fix education. It's let's annoy every trade union Democrat and every protectionist Republican and make them very, very cross. <laughs> Which they did. It failed. And I love how the FTA bill failed. It failed 220 to 215 with 110 Democrats and 110 Republicans voting the bill down. <laughs> I love that thought. The thought that you got, you got Dick Gephardt, one of the most liberal Democrats in the history of liberal Democrats, and Dick Amory, the most conservative Republican in history, both voting and both speaking in favour of the exact same thing. <laughs> Anyways, October the 10th, 97, uh, Newt Gingrich has a secret meeting with Bill Clinton in the White House. It's totally secret, you know what's happened, okay? And they discussed reforming social security. And the deal they shook hands on that night was that, get this, Republicans were going to raise taxes. They were going to raise the payroll tax from 6.2 to 7.4%. They were going to put all people on the payroll. In return, Democrats would raise the retirement age to 67 by 2050 and, and have savings accounts on top of Social Security. That was a the deal they shook hands on. They would see Social Security being solvent to the year 2100. That was the deal they shook hands on that night. Raising the retirement age by two years, over 53 years, and raising taxes and having savings accounts. Now, of course, yeah. you want to say social security, you have to be more horrible than that. You have to raise taxes by 3%. You have to put on the payroll. You're going to have to um, adjust benefits to CPI. You're going to have to raise the time age to 69. You're going to have to uh, do bump-up benefits for the poor and the elderly and do private-owned savings accounts. That would take us for another 100 years, guaranteed. Anyways, yeah. so that plan died because of Monica Lewinsky, 
apparently the media thought that the biggest issue in 1998 wasn't the economy with a surplus, wasn't trade, wasn't education, wasn't social security. It was, oh, the president has had an affair. Oh, big issue. It's, it's not, okay? Lyndon Johnson had affairs every week. Jack Kennedy had affairs virtually every day. Not an issue. Irrelevant issue here. Yeah. And I know everyone says it's a big issue. No, 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 no. It, it's, the, it's, it's, it's what I call a media issue. Your screen's frozen, mate. And whatever, media, whatever I refer to as a media issue often means irrelevant, boring, tedious, gossip nonsense. Now, so Clinton couldn't reinvent Social Security. Or, or I mean, he did do 10 years on the Medicare Trust Fund by doing Medicare Plus Choice, which was an amazing, amazing thing to do. Um, Clinton stays off impeachment. And then, of course, uh, in 1998, the budget is balanced. They have a seven... And, by the end of 98, they have a $70 billion budget surplus, which is a humongous victory for the, for the administration. Notice how in, the, in 100 years, it's only been three Southern Democrat presidents that have ever balanced the budget. Harry mm-hmm. Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and um, Bill Clinton. Yeah. That's it. Now, if welfare reform wasn't crazy enough for President Clinton, then comes the most crazy thing he did. Repealing Glass-Steagall, an idea so stupid, so ill-conceived, so utterly, utterly batshit crazy, it practically caused the global financial crisis. Basically, Glass-Steagall was a new era, a New Deal era bill that basically regulated how many banks there could be, how many trades they could do, the quantity of profit, etc. It was a massive government on the banks that I think is a brilliant idea. Because Alan Greenspan, known to me as the world's biggest dickhead, thought it was a horrendous idea, it got repealed. And they did Graham Leachy, which in fact created a privatised banking legislation. And that and the Home of Euro Act did by Mr. Bush caused the financial crisis. So his second term domestic legislation was more mixed. Okay, I'd argue his first term domestic legislation was a resounding success. He'd take out healthcare because it didn't pass because of lack of partisanship, but on crime, on the economy, on the budget, the first term was a resounding success. The second term started off as a complete resounding success on the balanced budget agreement, on the S-chip program. That were resounding ideas. Um, Social security, they could have had the big Medicare reform. That was an amazing success. And they could have done amazing on social security if you know Republicans had developed a backbone and a spine to know that many of them were adulterers as well. And they should, quite frankly, shut up. Uh, and then the second half, his second term, he went utterly dulali. But let's forget, his domestic record finished with 23 million new jobs, the highest amount of jobs created by any president before or since, a budget surplus of $200 billion, the highest budget surplus before or since, the lowest debt since Andrew Jackson 140 years before, the lowest inflation rate in American history, lowest unemployment since Lyndon Johnson. That is, and lowest peacetime unemployment since the 1920s. Those are genuine, massive accomplishments. That's the economic miracle. Hmm. You know, average income went up by $6,500 under Bill Clinton. Uh, amongst the poorest, went up by nearly $10,000 under Bill Clinton. Home ownership doubled. 
there were many domestic achievements, but it could have been a lot more. That's the thing. It's not like Obama, who had no domestic achievements. It, Bill Clinton was a genuine achiever. He was so much good in the first term and the second term. Now tell us about the foreign policies. It was Kosovo and Northern Ireland, really. Yeah, those are the two major things that happened in his um, second term. So in Kosovo, um, when the armed forces entered the autonomous province of Kosovo in the spring of 1998, um, ethnic tensions in the federal... Uh, what we're calling them? Sorry? Well, militia, whatever we call them. You're going to call them thugs, barbarians and savages. Well, I was going to go for the diplomatic approach. But we, <laughs> I can, yeah. when, when the thugs and savages entered the autonomous... Uh, I thought the army, a bunch of thugs and savages, yeah. what they did. I mean, you've read on what they did, haven't you? You've read on yeah. what they did uh, to yeah. women, to children, and, you know, the ghastly acts. And I, re- and I actually want to read what they did. They, yeah. they committed war crimes on young people. They committed... They impregnated many women by force. They had Muslim men shut up a shot. So I would not call them the, the, the military. I'd call them thugs, barbarians, and savages. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Well, anyway, ethnic tensions in the oh, don't think many people like these people down. Yeah. Ethnic tensions in the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia obviously increased because of it. Yeah. Um, Muslims who were ethnically Albanians made up more than ninety percent of the population of Kosovo, yes, um, and and many of them desired independence from the state. Right. Albanian rebels were put down by the mobilization of U- Yugoslav forces in the province. Dogs. So, so, um, so basically, the Muslims who wanted independence were even if they even if they protested legally, didn't uh, non-protest violence, were put down very brutally by the Yugoslav forces. Right. Now, Clinton, who had a strong ally, uh, who had a strong ally in the Albanians, um, mm-hmm. and attempted to impose the the Rambouillet Agreement. Yeah, whatever. I don't even know what that is, but I know yeah. what that is. Yeah, it, it which, which issued. Okay. Which, which issued a military strike warning to the Yugoslav government. Good. Um, American-led NATO uh, began its two-month assault of Yugoslavia on March 24th, 1999. And who was leading the, the fight? Who, was, who led the political crusade for this? Blair. Yeah. The day leader. Yeah. yeah. Um, the attacks weren't just on military targets. NATO also hit civilian targets like factories, oil refineries, TV stations, and other infrastructure. Regrettably, well, it had to be, but regrettably, though. Yeah, regrettably. They obviously didn't want to do it. It's the last resort. You have to. Yeah. It's regrettable, but you have to. Yeah. Both the UN Security Council and the General Assembly rejected the operation, which left Yugoslavia in ruin. And both China and Russia were very vehemently yeah. opposed to it. Everyone says about the UN, says, oh, we need the UN always. Let's remind everybody that when we did Kosovo, they prevented hundreds of thousands of Muslims being murdered. The United Nations sat on their hands and did nothing. Let's not forget this. The UN, which is this universally praised organisation during one of the worst ethnic cleansings and racial genocides since the Second World War, sat on their hands or stuck their... Put, sat on one hand and stuck the finger in the left ear and said, la, 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 we can't hear you. It was the action of NATO, the action of NATO that stopped the, sl- the cleansing. Yeah. I just want to make Thank that who does the UN. Because yeah. I like the UN. I like the UN a lot. I mean, the UN on international development, on peacekeeping, on helping the third world, does immensely good stuff. And you cannot yeah. get away from them. 
But being a supporter of the United Nations as I am, I can also point out to good people in the that if, if it was for if it was if it was if we had the, if the that if the UN had their way, the Kosovo War would never have been solved. No, true. Hmm. But they're still um, it, I mean it's very it's very good at NATO's if they'd ever nobody would do it. Oh NATO's much better. Um, it was the first time in NATO history that its forces had attacked the sovereign state, and it was also the first time that air superiority alone had triumphed in the conflict. Mm. Um, in June 1999, Shit. NATO and Yugoslav military leaders approved an international police, uh, not police, peace plan uh, for Kosovo, oh, and the tax was suspended. Oh, no, let's go back to your previous point there. It was the first time that air conflict had worked. I'm sorry, if you've got a part that had it not been for the troops that were deployed there, that the war would never... No, no, no. The, first, the first time air superiority alone had triumphed in the conflict. Yeah, okay. The, the... Wait, no, wait. Yeah. First of all, war? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Mm. The only way Saddam was... Oh, actually, no. The no would down. you... Would, 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 would have Saddam just have won with... Would, would, would the USA and the UK have just won if it was just air superiority, no, no, because Iran were part of it as well. So yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, we're drawn. Uh, well done. Yes. So my, and my um, agreement was ratified in '99. Yes. Uh, the Yugoslav military leaders approved the international peace, uh, peace plan for Kosovo, and attacks were suspended after Yugoslav forces withdrew from Kosovo. Now tell me, so that, that, that isn't how you win a war. That's how you win a war. You get to yeah. the enemy, you blow them out, you invade, you hound them out. You hound them out of their country. You say, get lost. And once they're told to get lost, then you bring them to the peace table and make them sign a proper agreement. That's how you do peace. You bring the enemy to its knees. And anybody who believes in liberal peace version, which is basically sit down and let's all cuddle the enemy. Well, we did that in the 1930s. <laughs> in the 1930s, when Neville Chamberlain did that in the 30s, and we ended up having a massive bloody Second World War. You mm. deal with enemies in a simple way. You target them, you destroy them. Like the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War could have been won if the US forces were 43 miles south where they were and had 20,000 less troops than they did. Mm. They were the de- they were for some time on the demilitarized zone. Why? It's demilitarized. There's nothing to it. There's no Vietnamese troops there. Go in. I mean, some people say you should never use nuclear weapons. Well, in Vietnam, maybe. But no, that's too horrible to contemplate. I mean, no, no, let's, let's not go down that front run any further. Otherwise, what liberal... Now I've lost all the conservatives. What liberal supporters I am going to lead the cause. <laughs> but it is true, though. Look at Hiroshima. That ended the Second World War with the, with the Eastern conflict. Mm. But equally, then, then any good liberal would then say, yes, and look at the fact that he destroyed the whole city for nearly 50 years. True, true, fair enough, fair enough. But you, you have to be hawkish with foreign policy. You have to, in my view, I much prefer the international development part of foreign policy, where you can actually, you know, rebuild waterworks, rebuild industry in, in third world countries, create a society of poverty in Africa. That's much my more focus. When it comes to militaristic, there is a very good reason why Britain are the undefeated World War champ- world champions at military conflict. Why Great Britain has never lost a war in its history. Ever. 
Now, I could get Al Murray to explain why, but I think we don't have the time of explaining why. <laughs> no, let's get him. Let's get him. <laughs> Al Murray, uh, Britain undefeated. Britain's defeated every country in the world. <laughs> every country, right? We defeated them. We've defeated every single fucking country in the world at war. Name a country, Gary. Germany. Germany, 1945, thank you very much. <laughs> very recent job done twice in one century. If only they tried again around 99, we've got the fucking hat trick. <laughs> Another country, please. Argentina. Argentina, 82, no help for no one else. And that, of course, was a war not for oil, but for penguins. Because we all know penguins are an essential ingredient in making Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> The white stuff floats the top, job done. Another country, please. Another one, France, thank you. We're in 1815 Waterloo, we haven't heard from them since. Yeah, another one, please. Canada. Canada, yeah, Canada used to be part of the British Empire, which means they're an ally of ours, as you know, being an ally of ours, counts as losing to us. <laughs> Why else are the Canadians so miserable? Another one, please. Hey? Spain, 1588, Battle of the Armada. Thank you, sir, we haven't heard from them since. Another one. Uganda, uh, that was an African colony, of course, that at one point used to belong to the Germans. And in 1919, the League of Nations, as you know, when the Treaty of Versailles, the world was redivided, and the African colonies were partitioned and uh, separated between France and, uh, and Great Britain. And we got Uganda as a result simply of uh, it being defeat the Germans. We got given Uganda, which sounds like fucking winning there, without even having to go there. Result. Another one, please. Another one. Another one. Need to go to more pub quizzes now. Another one, please. Hey, United States. All right, okay. You're thinking War of Independence, America finds itself free of Great Britain. They see that as a win. We see that as a lucky fucking escape. <laughs> but let's not forget, in the War of 1812 to 1814, the Royal Navy sailed up the Potomac River, set fire to the White House. The Americans had to whitewash it to cover up the fire damage, which is why it's called the White House. The Americans sued for peace at the end of 1814, even though they won a battle at the end of the war. They, the war's already over. The stupid fuckers were still fighting, even though they'd already lost. And that is America, and they've been working for us ever since. Another one, please. <laughs> Belgium! Belgium! Belgium, of course, is a creation of the uh, series of treaties that came out at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, in, uh, the fallout of Waterloo, 1815. It was the Duchy of, the Duchy of Burgundy, of course, and the Netherlands states were divided up, divided up into two buffer zones in order to prevent any one single power taking control of the Netherlands, which is, of course, our dangerous flank between Germany and France, and we don't like European hegemony of one power, and that's why Belgium and Holland were cut up to two in a buffer zone created. And I think if you create a country out of thin fucking air, you've won. Another one, please. <laughs> Italy, yeah, 1943, but folded early, didn't they? Hello, please. Burkina Faso. China, Opium War, 1860. Hello, please. Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso used to be a German colony, I refer you to my previous answer. Hello, please. Hey, Norway, they used to be the Vikings, love. We saw them off in the end, didn't we? Hello, please. <laughs> Japan, we got the Yanks to do it for us. Hello, <laughs> Peru. What language do they speak in Peru, sir? Portuguese. No, they don't, actually. They speak Spanish. Yeah, which means in 1512, when Pope Judas XII divided the New World into two lines, two sections down the line of longitude 129, the stuff from the east of that went to Portugal, which is why they speak Portuguese in Brazil, the stuff from the west of that went to Spain, which means Peru was technically part of Spain when we defeated Spain in 1598, back in the Armada, so we've done Peru without having a visit. <laughs> Chopped up. <laughs>
Now, does that answer my theory that we are the undefeated World War champions in every country in the world? There is no country Britain has not managed to destroy. That complaints. Sorry, I had it's been 31 episodes. I realized I didn't put a single Alma reclip in once. I had to do it at some point. Now, go on, tell us. So, yeah, Kosovo was a huge success. No one can deny that. I think it was more successful on the British rather than the Americans. I'd argue Bosnia was successful on the Americans. I'd say Brit- Britain led more on Kosovo, especially with Donny Blair, as there are children in Kosovo now called Tony Blair, which I must say is a, is a nice thing there, a sentiment for their leader. Uh, but Clinton still had an achievement. But tell us about Northern Ireland, again, where Clinton famously caused sent Senator Mitchell to do the Senate Majority Leader for a time to deal with yeah. Northern Ireland. Oh. He wanted to negotiate a peace deal between the nationalists and the unionist side, with London's obviously London's commission of doing it. Clinton was able to put an end to the conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, the Good Friday Agreements was negotiated in 1998 by former Senator George Mitchell. Clinton had, cho- had chosen to aid in the peace negotiations. With Bertie ma- David Trimble and Tony Blair. Mm. Yes, obviously. It, it demanded... I give the Yanks all the credit. And I was just, I was just doing the American perspective oh, for right. this part. Well, it no demanded answer. that... True, true. <laughs> it demanded that the Northern Ireland Assembly, whose executive would compromise, who would compromise representatives from both groups, Gets the legislative and executive powers currently held by the British Parliament in the region. I mean, that was hilarious. Yeah. Because you had, I mean, yeah, was it Ian? It was Trimble and McGuinness, then it was Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, <laughs> which I that is, I'm sorry, that's too funny. Ian Paisley, the leader of the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Martin McGuinness, the leader of practically the political wing of the IRA, known as Sinn Féin, were in government together <laughs> for nearly eight years. God, yeah. that's pretty amazing. Well, years of impasse. Which is now, of course, by these twats running the country. Yeah. yeah. I'm referring to Elizabeth Truss and Alexander de Fethel Boris Johnson. Well, Sorry, Alexander Boris I mean, Johnson, that's it. Things aren't looking very bright for Sunak, are they? Yeah. Well, is he so, do you see what Sunak said today? Yeah, he said that was diverting money away from the poorest in society. <laughs> he said, I we inherited formulas from Labour that was putting lots of money into the urban areas and poverty areas, so we gave it all back to the rich. Well, thank you for explaining Tory policy. We all knew rich needs, okay. At least you had the guts to say what we all knew you yeah, were. I can't. I kind of wanting to win the election now, just for just for the night, uh, just for the tw- uh, twenty twenty four general election. Keir Starmer to rub that in his face. If I was Keir Starmer and Richardson became the leader, I would get that clip and play it in every red red wall constituency in this country. <laughs> watch the and <laughs> watch the red wall just come rushing back to Labour. Anyways, T telling us about how the Northern Ireland Agreement worked. Well, there's years of impasse followed the accord, uh, mostly because the provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, a nationalist parliamentary organisation, refused, yeah. uh, refused to decommission its weapons for a while. And then the Democratic Unionist Party declined to advance the process because the yeah. IRA refused to give, give up its weapons. Yeah. The DUP, yeah. Yeah, stupidly. Mitchell, 
Mitchell went back to the area and put together another plan for a new peace accord, which led to the formation of the power sharing government that had been agreed upon the years uh, the year before in December 1999, yeah. and the subsequent steps towards Iowa dis, uh, disarming. disarmament. Um, even though Clinton continued peace negotiations to save the peace process from the entirely dis- disintegrating before his eyes, um, that deal ultimately failed as well. Uh, the IOA eventually dismantled all its weapons in 2005, and in 2007, Sinn Féin declared its support for the Northern Ireland Police Service after it underwent reform. When the Assembly uh, regained control in May 2007, there's a fresh uh, commitment to implementing the Good Friday Agreement. So Clinton had a say, but basically what was happening between the period of 1996 and, 19, and, and the year 2000 was not much, it was just back and forth. The IRS said, I'm not giving up, giving up my weapons. So the DUP said, well, fine, we're not signing a deal. That, that was basically what happened. If you understand your history, you'll understand totally why the, not, the Catholics were so cynical about the peace process. The Sinn Féin yeah. was so cynical because, you know, they had been persecuted, they'd been, they'd been abused, they'd been, uh, in the 60s, in the 60s, and I'd say up to the mid-70s, the Catholics were a huge persecuted minority within Northern Ireland. No, no reasonable person can deny that, especially when Mr. Heath, that's Edward Heath, did internment. Internment was the biggest recruiting drive for the IRA, was internment. Not my words, David Cameron's words, were the biggest recruiting drive for the IRA. But then equally, it, then there's equally a fair argument that says, okay, but from the mid-70s to the mid-90s, the IRA was basically terrorising British people and Northern Irish Protestants on a daily basis, which I also think is a perfect mm. fair thing to say. That, mm. that both sides, I'd argue, were very afflicted. But you have to remember, yeah. the European Union was central to the GFA. Why? Because what was the good the Good Friday Agreement was structured on the idea that if you were a, if you were a Christian nationalist, uh, a Irish Christian nationalist like Sinn Fein, you because there was no border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, you get you got to feel that you were part of the United Ireland. And if you were yeah. a, a Protestant Unionist, part of the DUP or the Ulster Unionists, you felt that you were part of your country, Northern Ireland, part of the UK. Now, along the fact that decommissioning did go ahead. And the fact that you have power sharing, you know, Trimble, then Bertie Ahern, and then Ian Paisley with Matt McGuinness, that creates stability in Northern Ireland. And that's actually, if I was a Remainer on the Brexit argument, that's the that's where I'd be putting my arguments on. Because no, apart from where Dover, because Dover's been messed up by Brexit on an epic scale, Northern Ireland has been absolutely ruined because of Brexit ruined and now this government are now going one step further by basically trying to trash the good friday agreement because we are fifth a third rate politicians and a fifth rate media yeah anyways i had to get that gag in at some i had to get that one in at some point <laughs> so go on let's discuss the legacy of the president now we can finish this by nine o'clock even doing this for 100 minutes so what do you think what do you think bill clinton's legacy was I think I think his legacy certainly was certainly was his unemployment record or lack of unemployment. His, his uh, yeah, the jobs, the uh, the debt, uh, reducing the deficit. So we had a so we had a so we had a and then also and also um, having a um, oh my god, the word slipped my mind. When you got look excess Inflation. money, what's it called? No, excess money. What's it called? Surplus. 
surplus. Thank you. It completely slipped my mind, my my mind that word. And and having a two hundred and ten billion dollars surplus. I mean, it's these are huge records. I mean, stuff stuff that I don't think a president will ever beat again in a long time. I think. He and would. I think. I think. And I think. I think. I think this is. I think that will be his legacy. The economic situation that he left George Bush in was absolutely brilliant. Oh yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Fastest growth in American history, the lowest unemployment in 50 years, the lowest inflation in record, the highest budget surplus in American history, Medicare remaining solvent with Medicare plus choice, Social Security being strengthened, uh, but not fully strengthened as it should have been, the fact you had the S-chip program, the crime bill, the assault weapons ban, the Brady bill, the uh, the Kennedy Casabon bill that allowed you to keep your health insurance if you, as well, even if you lost your job. You know, these were absolutely amazing achievements. You know, 23 million new jobs, the $210 billion surplus. These were massive. You know, the time Bill Clinton left office, if they continued to surplus, America would have been debt-free by 2012. Yeah. Right? Clinton came in with a $290 billion deficit. That's Two nine zero 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 zero. To me, just how long that sounds, and he left with a two hundred and ten billion dollar surplus. That is a remarkable achievement, remarkable, and you know, Mr. Bush, of course, anointed by the Supreme Court, comes in and ruins everything because he's a complete cretin of a president. But Clinton left with a booming economy, with a great uh, industrial and foreign policy. America's reputation was never higher by by it was on January nineteenth, two thousand and one. Peace yeah. around, peace in Kosovo, uh, uh, Bosnia sorted. You had America taking a central role in the G twenty and the G eight. These were remarkable achievements, and I think look, this is how I view the Clinton presidency. Bill Clinton will be reviewed will be viewed as the greatest president in the modern uh, history. So since Roosevelt, I'd argue, since Johnson, he'd be viewed as the greatest president of them all. But I'd also argue that he'll also be remembered for his personal weaknesses because of his indiscretions. That Clinton was probably the greatest politician since FDR, right? extraordinarily charismatic, extraordinarily intelligent, a visionary of a leader who had within him the chance to be the, probably the greatest of the lot of them. And had but the, the, the tragedy of the Clinton presidency was what could have been done, right? The social security, like explained to you before, that him and Gingrich shook hands upon, would have made social security solvent to the year 2100. He could have gone so much further, but he had indiscretions from Whitewater to the FBI files to the Indonesian money to Monica Lewinsky. So, I mean, if I was to give him a rating out of 10, it'd be 9.4, okay? He is, on my president's list, the third greatest of all of them, okay? Roosevelt, Johnson, Clinton, in that order, then followed by uh, Reagan and H.W. Bush, in that order. But he could have done so much more. That's I agree, it. and I think, and I, and I think, and I think the fact that he could have done so much more is why I'm going to give them a nine. I mean, yeah. it's still good, but I think, I think the stuff that he could have done, which he didn't do, 
because of his because because his personal life, because of all because that got in the way. Pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I the, love it. The fact that throughout the Lewinsky scandal, Bill Clinton's approval ratings went only one way upwards. Upwards. <laughs> he started in 1998 with a 54% approval rating. He finished 1998 with a 73% approval rating. I love it. In 97, they go, in 98, they go, do you view Bill Clinton as, quote, moral or immoral, right? 81% say immoral. Then they go, do you believe that Bill Clinton is effective in his role as president? 83% say yes, he is effective. Then the third question was, which do you believe is more important, uh, effective at the job or personal behavior? Effective at the job, 77%. Personal behavior, 15 even I mean, he left nine. He left the presidency with a sixty-seven percent approval rating. He had ninety-five percent Democrats backing him. He had 71 percent of the independents backing him, and get this, forty-two percent of Republicans backing approving of him. By the two thousand election day, Clinton had ninety-four percent of Democrats, sixty-three percent independents, thirty-eight percent Republicans. That mm-hmm. has not been replicated since Franklin Roosevelt. So when you ask, would he have won in 2000? Yes. Yeah. Are you deliberately yeah. changing the filter on your screen? No. All right. So it went grey for a minute. Oh, what? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well. He, he could have won in 2000. And I think the fact that Al Gore did not campaign with Clinton, which he should have done, he should have mm. done, campaigned with Clinton, was and the fact that the stupid people of Florida couldn't count the votes correctly, and the fact that Janet Reno deported Elian Gonzalez, and the fact they got you know, hypnotized by compassionate conservatism, which is basically right wing bullshit, was the reason that Mr. Bush was anointed by the Supreme Court. But Clinton, I'd give 9.2. So, so far, we've given FDR 10, we've given uh, Lyndon, we've given uh, eight, I've given 8.6. I've given Carter 7.8. I've given Reagan 6.4. I've given Bush uh, 8.4. I've given Clinton 9.2. And that's now for friends, this comes to the end of my positive view on presidents because the next three presidents I all have extremely contemptuous views of. We have Mr. Bush, who I will give a rating no higher than a three. Mr. Obama, President Obama, President Obama, we address him with respect, who I'll give a rating no higher than four. And Mr. Trump, who I'll give a rating no higher than minus 100 million. <laughs> minus 100 million, not, not plus anything. No, no, minus. Him and Sarah Palin are the only two people I give negative ratings to because they're so <laughs> shit. <laughs> Anyways, so next week, uh, I'm off to Copenhagen. I won't go back till Thursday evening. But mm. next Saturday or Sunday, Mr. Aldridge will be back on the podcast. Harry's will be back with us. And we will be talking about restoring law and order, potentially. Restoring law and law order. And order. Law and order. We must have law and order. Uh, we will probably be doing law and order at the end of the day. And then in the next um, episode after that, we'll be talking about, well, Depends. Will I do President Gore or shall we do Mr. Bush? Well, probably Mr. Bush. We'll have to do Mr. Bush. Uh, I was address his father as President Bush because I have high admiration for HW. But I always refer to George Bush as Mr. Bush, but I didn't have nothing but contempt for him. So I we will see you next Saturday. Goodbye for now. Bye.